www.kkdt.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, this is an opportunity for our friends to call in as they have questions from God's Word as they've been studying it, and maybe they'd like some help or some particular challenge or application they're facing in their own life or ministry and they'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help, we will do the best we can by God's grace. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number locally is 525 1859. Our toll free number for our internet listeners is 877 WAGP 980. When you call, you can simply dictate your question, or if you prefer, you can go on the air live. You can also email us, and we get a lot of email questions each week directly here into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. So uh, any of those ways, we can be contacted. Rick, as always, it's good to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've gotten a number of questions that have come in, so let's get to them right now. Okay. Joel in Durham, North Carolina, writes, I'm interested in your take on the whole Jesus versus Yeshua in the respects of Greek versus Hebrew, also the whole Passover versus Easter. Okay, well, those are good questions. Let me see if I can respond. Um, the word Jesus is a uh, English translation of the uh, Greek name that is given for Messiah in the New Testament. The word Joshua is a translation for the uh, Hebrew name for uh, Messiah. If you were Jewish and you spoke Hebrew, you wouldn't refer to Jesus by his Greek name, Iesus. You'd refer to him by his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Um, you know, is it a big deal? No. Uh, you know, in other parts of the world where people speak Hebrew and they're believers and even non- unbelievers who refer to Jesus in some, say, historical context, they don't call him Jesus. They call him Yeshua. Just like if I'm in uh, some Spanish-speaking country, they don't call me Carl, they call me Carlos, uh, which is correct. Well, it just depends on your language. So the meaning is the same. Uh, Joshua would be Yeshua brought in from uh, Hebrew into English. Jesus would be his name brought in from Greek into English. Either of them are acceptable uh, in both communicate. Now, in terms of the second half of your question, Passover versus Easter, you don't really 
um, explain much what you mean by that, but I'm guessing, so let me guess, um, there is uh, some debate amongst evangelical Christians whether or not we should uh, even use the term Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, interestingly, the word Easter is found in only one place in all the Bible and only in one translation of the Bible, namely the King James Version. Uh, let me uh, read where it is found. It says, now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Uh, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer was made uh, fervently for him by the church. Now, interestingly, in the King James Version on Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, after it describes Peter's arrest, it says, intending after Easter to bring him out before the people. Here in the New American Standard and all the other English translations, it says, after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Well, which translation is correct? Is one better than the other? Um, and some would dispute the term Easter because it has uh, pagan connotations in terms of the etymology of the word. The word clearly comes from uh, the worship of in uh, celebration of a pagan goddess. Uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't necessarily mean that today. In fact, I think most people, if you had to ask them, well, what does the word Easter mean? What does it refer to? Unless they have just some modern secular connotation, oh, the Easter bunny and, you know, eggs in springtime. Uh, if they have some Christian connotation, they think, well, that's uh, the celebration of Christ's, you know, death and, and resurrection that weekend. So here's the setting. Peter is thrown in jail uh, after James had been put to death. And there was an agreement amongst the Roman government with the Jewish people that there would be no executions during a high holy holiday. And of course, Passover was followed by the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasted for seven days. Sometimes the whole ball of wax was just referred to as Passover. Uh, that time frame of uh, eight days, beginning with the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed in the temple as families brought their Passover lambs, followed by the days of uh, unleavened bread. In either case, I think Easter is a fine translation that the King James uses in the sense that they were trying to use a term that communicated to first century believers, and or excuse me, to 16th century believers. Now, uh, the word that is used here is the Greek word pascha, and it's the word for Passover. So all the other translations, and interestingly, the New King James is not translated Easter, but Passover. So they're correct as well. So when you are translating from the original language to a receptor language, you're always trying to ask what word in the language that I speak, if you're a translator, what language, what word in, in, in the language I speak is best suitable for those who are going to read God's word? What's going to communicate to them? And in the 17th century, they decided it was the word Easter. Uh, 
um, maybe I think a better translation today would be Passover because it has been resurrected again, the whole issue of the pagan origins of Easter. Some would argue the opposite, and they'd say, no, Easter is still a good translation, because most people have no idea in terms of its association with uh, a pagan goddess that was worshipped in in Greek and Roman times. Well, you know, why not just go with Passover, since that's the word there, and that's how we translate it in every single other instance in the New Testament, King James included. So why translate it Easter here? Let's just remove the controversy. And that's what the translators of the New King James decided to do, because it was an unnecessary controversy. Uh, so I don't have a problem, though, with that said, celebrating, quote-unquote, Easter. Uh, Okay, some churches say, well, we don't want to call it Easter. We want to call it Resurrection Sunday. Okay, great. Call it Resurrection Sunday. But again, I want to communicate to an unsaved world, and so we invite them to our Easter celebrations. They know what we mean when we say that, and we're trying to reach the unchurched and the lost people of the day in which we live in. Uh, So I don't have a problem using the term Easter because in my mind it has no connotation whatsoever of some pagan goddess that we, you know, ascribe our allegiance or or give our worship to. So, again, these are important issues. They're, They're maybe a little bit semantical in some people's minds, but they are important because words do have meaning. So let's go to our next question. All right. Well, um, our next question is, does the Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.17 reference of old men dreaming dreams and young men having visions occur today? And also, are there any dreams recorded in the Bible that are of past events? Uh, The basis for this question is that we were in a discussion that visions are of future happenings, and we were wondering if dreams could be of the past, present, and future. Well, I I think your premise that dreams are of a future happening comes from maybe a misunderstanding of the term that uh, Peter is using here on the day of Pentecost. When uh, the Holy Spirit came, his coming was accompanied with flames that uh, were in the shape of a tongue that were distributed on each one of the 120 I don't know how that took place because the Bible doesn't describe it. You know, was the tongue above their head? Was it sitting in their lap? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. But there were tongues of fire that accompanied each individual. So there was some visual manifestation. There was uh, what appeared to be a loud noise, it says, and there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. And so the Bible tells us that there was a large sound. It describes it in verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. There was no wind, but there was a noise like a violent rushing wind. If you've ever been through a hurricane or maybe even better, or t- a tornado, the sound is really sometimes it points deafening. And if you're living in the first century where there's no real mechanical sound to speak of, and you heard this incredible noise, you'd want to say, what's that? And you would be drawn to that spot. And that's what happened with these people. And God was assembling lost people because he loves lost people and wants them to be saved. And then they witnessed a miracle 
where all these people came out and they spoke these different languages that they had previously uh, not known uh, as individuals. They spoke not only a language, but they spoke a dialect within a language. And of course, the reaction is mixed. And it says, and they all continued in amazement, in great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Uh, But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, And all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is not when people get drunk. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And now he quotes Joel 2, which you're referencing here in your question. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So he's describing it. Then he goes on and he's describing a future time, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days put forth my spirit and they shall prophesy that that all happened that day. And then he says, continuing to quote the prophet Joel, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, when does that refer to? Well, that's still in the future. Jesus associates it in the Olivet Discourse with the days just before his coming. So when you read Joel, there's an immediate fulfillment that happens on the day of Pentecost. But there is a later fulfillment that will happen in the last of the last days just before the second coming of Jesus. So as you read the New Testament, it becomes apparent that we are in the last days. When did the last days begin? On the day of Pentecost. Uh, These guys are drunk. Peter says, no, this is what the prophet said would happen in the last days. In other words, you are seeing before your eyes the very thing that the prophet said would be fulfilled in the last days. So as you read through the New Testament, you read of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that there's nothing prophetically that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. Now, there's all kinds of things that have to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back and rule and reign upon the earth for, the, for a thousand years. But his second coming really unfolds in two parts. First, he catches up the church. We call that the rapture from a Latin translation down in the 4th century. Some people will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it is in the Latin translation. Uh, It comes from rapto into English as rapture. Uh, You could call it the catching up of the church if you want it. We shall all be caught up. That's rapture uh, from the Latin, caught up. Call it the catching up if you want, if you want to be, you know, precise in terms of uh, semantics so that you don't confuse. If that's helpful to you, great. But there are other words that certainly don't appear in the Bible, but the 
concept in the truth are found, words like trinity or original sin or eternal security. Those are not biblical terms, but those represent biblical truths. So the church is going to be caught up. Nothing has to happen for Jesus to come. And that's why, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote with an expectation that it could happen in his day. He uses the first plural, a first person plural pronoun. We shall not all sleep. Um, He speaks of the fact that it could happen in his life. It's the last hour. He's standing right at the door. Expressions like that. Because Jesus could come back at any moment for his church. Now, the time of Jacob's trouble, we call it in the New Testament, the Great Tribulation Period, a term that really comes out of uh, Daniel 12, where Daniel uses similar words and Jesus uses similar words in, in Matthew 24, a time that's unparalleled in human history. For certain events to happen during that time frame, there's a lot that has to take place. There has to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, because in the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist goes in and commits what the prophet Daniel refers to as the abomination of desolation, something that Jesus references again in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where he makes himself out to be God. That temple has to be there for an Antichrist to go in and to perform that uh, abominable act. Uh, There is no temple, but there will be by the midpoint of the Great Tribulation period. So there's a lot of things that still have to be fulfilled for the Second Coming. And when you read great passages like Matthew 24 and 25 that largely describe the events leading up to the Second Coming, for the most part, it all circles and centers around the nation of Israel. So the fact that there are prophecies in our lifetime that have been fulfilled in reference to the second coming of Christ, is a reminder to us that the rapture is that much closer. Sometimes I'll say, you know, when you go into Walmart in October and you see the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. So when you see the signs for Christmas, you know that Thanksgiving that comes before Christmas is approaching. And when we see in our day God fulfilling prophecy, like reestablishing Israel as a nation, like um, causing the Jewish people uh, to migrate back into the land. Over two and a half million Jewish people just from the former Soviet countries with the fall of communism have migrated back into Israel. Is that accidental? No, that's prophetical. That's a fulfillment of what God said he would do. He is going to gather his people back into the land where eventually the nations of the world will go against Israel. Israel's in the news all the time. And if you want to look at the return of Christ, look at Israel, because just as he used that nation to bring about the first coming, he will use that nation to bring about the second coming. And so my point in all of this is that we have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. Jesus could come at any moment. And so Peter acknowledges that. Now, he goes on to remind us that the last days have a much greater progression to them. And so he quotes the entire passage, which I find interesting that he doesn't end just with the fulfillment of what took place at Pentecost. Uh, he, He quotes prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. 
Now, to bring it back down to our day, you say, well, this is something in the future. Well, this is actually something in the past. Uh, What God did on the day of Pentecost took place, you know, 2,000 years ago. Sometimes people say, well, can God still give dreams and visions? Well, God can do anything that he wants to. But with that said, I would say that God typically does not give dreams or visions. And certainly if God gave a dream or a vision, it could not be inconsistent with anything that he's already revealed. And so then the question becomes, well, what's the need then? Remember, God spoke in many portions and in many ways. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Did Abraham ever read a verse of scripture? Of course not. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yet the first verse of scripture was never penned until hundreds of years after Abraham through Moses. So how did, um, how did Abraham get spoken to? Well, visions, dreams, direct encounters with God, like when God came uh, as an angel of the Lord and in different settings. So direct encounters with God. He was a recipient of uh, revelation, but not through written means. He was a recipient of revelation through dreams and visions and so forth. So God did that in that day. Does he still do it in this day? Well, he did it in the first century because the Bible wasn't completed. So Paul's traveling across uh, Europe and he has plans to go north, to go south. And every time he makes a move, the door is slammed shut. And he's kind of, you know, channeled across uh, Europe. And as he, uh, excuse me, across Asia, and as he gets across Asia, then he has a vision one night. And he has this dream where, you know, a man in Philippi says, come on over and help us. Where did that dream come from? Well, God gave Paul that dream. Now, was it inconsistent with anything that God had revealed in past times? Certainly not. Um, And God wanted Paul to, to go on over to Philippi. And so they went and they saw that God was opening a whole new door for the gospel. And the gospel began now to, to break into Europe. And Europe becomes, of course, the center of Christianity for over a thousand years. And so Paul's ministry in Europe is critical. So does God give dreams and visions today? Well, not typically. And I know sometimes people measure spirituality by experience. You know, and you you hear women like Beth Moore who, you know, basically give a, uh, you know, the, the speech back that God dictated to her. That's extremely dangerous. That 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 That's really wrong. That's bad theology. Listen, virtually every cult that it was ever started was started on some dream or revelation or vision that someone had some kind of communication beyond and outside of the Bible. That's very, very dangerous. Now, can God ever use a dream? I wouldn't want to say that he never did. I have a missionary friend who was in India and some people came to see the Jesus film and and they said they had a dream during the night that they needed to go to such and such a place. And they went when they got there, they heard the plan of salvation through the Jesus film. Could God do that? Certainly could. Is it typical? No. Um, and I don't know of anyone that I really respect 
as a man of God, as a Bible teacher, as a leader in the church in the past hundred or so years that ever had, quote unquote, some dream or vision as uh, typical of God communicating to him. So again, whatever dream is given can't be inconsistent with prior revelation. If it is, then it's adding or subtracting to the Bible. If you say, thus saith the Lord in a dream, and you're putting that revelation on the same level of Scripture. So when Beth Moore says, well, God spoke to me and said, you know, Beth, when you go and speak and mix audiences, don't worry about what other people think. You just please me. Well, she better worry what God thinks because what she's doing is in direct contradiction to 1 Timothy 2. So she has had, quote unquote, a dream that she puts, you know, God's name behind in giving it a supposed credence that contradicts the revealed truth of Holy Scripture. So listen, be careful when you go around saying God spoke to me. and, And I'm not saying that God can't impress your heart in terms of an application or lead you in a direction. I'm not discounting that. But sometimes when people say God spoke to me and then they start dictating what he said, to me that's extremely dangerous and it's uh, really going beyond the bounds of what we find modeled or taught in the epistles. All right, very good. And and so in regards to the second part of that question, then uh, all dreams that are listed in the Bible then are either uh, looking forward or they are directing the recipient of that dream to do something. Exactly. Nothing is actually looking backwards. No, that's right. Okay, good. All right. Um, Angie from Okatee asks, some seem to like to write off much of the non-red ink scripture as being responsive to cultural issues of that day, but irrelevant to us today since we live in a different age. How do we appropriately draw the line as to which scripture was time culture sensitive to that era and which applies to all peoples for all times? It's a good question. It's really a hermeneutical question. Herman who? Uh, hermeneutics is the uh, interpretation of the Bible, how we, the study and the approach of how we understand or interpret and apply scripture. And it's a science, I suppose, in and of itself. But God has given us some principles within the word of God as to how to interpret the word of God. You say, where do you find those? Well, you find them, especially in the New Testament, when you see the Lord Jesus and the apostles interacting with the Old Testament. Because when you see them interacting with the Old Testament, you learn how it is or what procedures they apply when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Well, what approach did they take? They took a a plain, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of God's Word. Now, there have been times in the history of the church when the Bible has been Uh, interpreted allegorically. We were talking about this earlier today. St. Augustine at one point was very guilty of this. He he didn't always do it, but he set precedents for it. Like his commentary on the Song of Solomon is entirely allegorical, and it totally misses the uh, historical setting in which it was given. But he came up with all kinds of, you know, different and bizarre interpretations you know, like the hinges on the door represented such and such. And, you know, you can really go wacko with that kind of stuff and you can end up making the Bible mean just about anything you want it to mean. But when you see the writers of the New Testament 
interplaying with the authors of the Old Testament. You see them taking a plain literal hermeneutic. They just take it at face value. With that said, there are some things in the Bible that are really pretty clear and easy and non-controversial to understand. I'm still here in 2 Timothy from where we read 2 Timothy 2.15 that we opened the hour with. If I look across the page, for instance, to um, 2 Timothy 4, uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Now that's a command. It's a direct command given by inspiration of the Spirit of God. But I doubt any of us have ever felt the need to go to Troas and to find some kind of cloak or parchments to bring to a guy who's been dead for a few thousand years, namely the Apostle Paul. We understand that that has a a time frame in which it was given. It has a time frame in which it is applied. Um, And it was a unique command given to Timothy. Now in the same book, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 say, and I'm looking now at verse 3, Paul commands Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him you need to be willing to suffer hardship. Is that unique to Timothy? No, that that's that applies to everybody. It has special application, I think, especially to a pastor, but in a broad sense, it applies to every child of God. Uh, certainly a pastor needs to stay focused and not get entangled in events and affairs that would take him away from his ministry. Uh, but certainly that's true of Believers as well. Sometimes believers get so caught up in the affairs of everyday life, they have no time for ministry, no time for their church, no time to win their next door neighbor for Christ because they're investing their time in all the wrong things. So no one would really have a problem with that. It's really the things kind of in between that people, you know, struggle with and wrestle with. And those are the issues that we need to, you know, ask plainly, well, how do I apply it? Like, um, let me give an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, two believers not taking each other to court. How would they have done that in the first century? Well, you had two Christians who would go before a pagan judge at the city gate and they would have that pagan judge decide on their case. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that, that's, that's not something that you should do. Um, you know, you don't sue each other. You don't take each other to court. Uh, that's not something I want you to do. Aren't there two wise people among you? First Corinthians 6, does anyone... Among you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go before law, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Don't you realize that we have the capability to to judge such matters? He argues because um, we're going to judge even angels. 
And if we can be involved in the judgment of angels in the future as church saints, can't we judge each other in terms of disputes that we have and not go before unbelievers and ruin our testimony? So there's, when you look at it in its historical context, there are some things that are different. Uh, They would have done this in the arena of the city gate because that's the matter. That was a place where matters like this were decided. We do it in the arena of a courtroom. But does the principle apply? Sure it does. Christians don't sue Christians. Uh, We go to the church when we have a dispute amongst each other. And the church should have wise people amongst themselves to be able to decide such matters. And if they come to some judicatory decision and they recognize that, oh, you know, brother, you're wrong and you owe him this $10,000 and he refuses to pay it and he's unsubmissive to the elders, then they exercise church discipline on him. And if they exercise church discipline where he doesn't respond to the point where he's dismembered, then you treat him as a tax collector, as an unbeliever. And then you would have a legal right to pursue him. But you've gone through the proper channels in the interim. Uh, So there's a timeless principle when I look at it in its historical setting that is really indisputable. Now, in the same book, he talks about head coverings. A woman should have her head covered in church. Well, as a general rule, if the head covering or whatever issue it is that is being addressed has the same meaning in our culture today, then it does have direct application. So as uh, this question came up, I think on our last Bible line, I mentioned that in many places of the world today, especially say the church in Eastern Europe, a head covering is still worn by women uh, to acknowledge that they are married and that they are under their husband's leadership. In fact, uh, even non-Christian women tend to wear head coverings. Now, this has begun to change in the last 10 years. So now when you go to Eastern Europe, and it's kind of a dispute in some of the churches that I go to in Eastern Europe, should the women still continue to wear head coverings? Because the uh, cultural expression is beginning to uh, quickly uh, eradicate itself in most um, Slavic Eastern European countries. And so amongst unbelievers, uh, very few married women wear head coverings anymore. But when I first started going to Eastern Europe in the mid-1990s, I could look out uh, across a, a busload of people and tell you who's married and who's not. And that all the married women, Christian or non-Christian, had head coverings. I could look out across the congregation, tell you who is married and who is single. And that all the married women had head coverings. And the single women did not. Now you can go into the same venues, especially, say, in the secular city and busloads and malls. And younger married women aren't wearing the head coverings. So it's fast changing. So there is a principle that has application, some that might be unique to a given culture, some that is other principles that are timeless in their application. So if I live in a country of the world where for a woman not to wear a head covering is to basically either prostitute herself as immoral 
which it means and did mean in some cultures like the Corinthian culture, or it could mean in still other cultures that I don't respect my husband's leadership over me, that he is really my head. Um, If those connotations still exist, then it would be very important for a woman to wear a head covering. If they don't, the timeless principle, however, of respecting your husband's leadership still applies because God has dictated that the husband be the head of the home. You can't have two heads or you have a monster. So God has an order of things. It's not a matter of equality or better or lesser. It's a matter of roles that different people play within the body of Christ. So when you approach the scriptures, you ask, well, what are the timeless principles? Um, And what are the cultural expressions? And when you study it very carefully, now let me just say too that sometimes the scriptures are abused in this way, and maybe this is the source of your question. You don't comment a whole lot on the question that's been emailed here. But some people would say, well, you know, woman, a woman teaching in the church, that was just a problem in the first century. It's not a problem in the 21st century. Well, if you go back and you carefully exegete that passage of Scripture, say in 1 Timothy 2, Paul makes it crystal clear that it has absolutely nothing to do with culture and everything to do with God's order of things. He goes back to the order of creation and he goes back to the way the fall unfolded. Had nothing to do with some unique cultural expression. And this is why a careful study of the text in terms of what did it mean to the original audience, those are important questions to ask. What, did, what was the original you know, intent of the human author as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and how would, have the, how would the first century audience have understood it? And when I can wrestle and get a hold of those truths, then I can make proper application to my life. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And online, you can email us at uh, uh, tbl at net. Our next listener from Texas writes, I was talking to an Amish man at the Amish farm where I like to buy food. He has a very good understanding of the Bible, though it is the Luther translation into German, and he's not as familiar with the English translation. Based on my conversations with him, the Amish have a solid biblical understanding of salvation, depravity, Christology, and bibliology. I suppose their main distinguishing characteristic is their practical application of separation and corresponding lack of missions. However, it is interesting to note that WAGP News has been saying they are the fastest-growing Christian group in America due to the fact that they do tend to obey the Bible and bearing children and raising their children to follow the Lord. The Amish man asked me if I thought people could still see an angel today. While it was an interesting conversation of various aspects of encounters with angels in the Bible, the end conclusion was that neither one of us knew if people could see angels, i.e. have encounters with angels today. I'm not talking about angels unawares that are the indistinguishable from uh, humans or about demons, I think. If the Bible indicates that people can see angels today, then how would you know if someone encountered an angel? I myself have not encountered an angel, though I wonder if I've encountered angels unawares that look and act like people. I assume this Amish man has a particular story of an encounter in mind, and that's why he's asking. 
The Amish man did also gladly receive a Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend track for his own reading of Christian material. All right. It's a good question, and uh, let me see if I can respond to it. Uh, there's a lot of questions really written uh, in in this long paragraph. Uh, let me first just comment on the Amish in general. There are many good, godly Amish people. But I would say, for the most part today, the Amish no longer have the gospel. Uh, what has happened with time, as has happened with many denominations and different groups, is that the traditions have been carried on, but the... Um, essence of the gospel has not been carried on. And so that's the sad thing with the Amish people. They carry on a a lot of traditions uh, that, you know, have been around for a long time in their community. But in terms of preaching the gospel, many of them don't even understand what it is. And uh, I know there was a number of years there when we would travel from South Carolina to Massachusetts, and I had five children at home, and we didn't always want to drive, and um, so uh, we didn't always want to fly, so we drove, and we'd often go through the Amish country, and so we'd spend a night, sometimes two nights there, and I got into a lot of conversations, and what I began to discover is that, for the most part, the Amish and the Mennonite people in that area no longer knew what salvation by grace was. Uh, So, you know, what happened? Well, they substituted, I think, an external righteousness that would come through their practices on separation for the kind of righteousness that God can alone give as a gift by his grace. Add to that, um, when you have a group that denies the doctrine of eternal security, which they do, then I think that, you know, you you have some serious problems in terms of holding on to the grace of God and not compromising the grace of God. Now, I don't think you heard on WAGP that the Amish are the fastest growing group in the United States. They are a fast growing group. Most would put evangelical Christians but they certainly are one of the fastest growing religious groups um, in certain segments of the country where you would find the Amish people. Some people, I think, out of a certain nostalgia, think, oh, I'd like to kind of live like they live. And it just seems like they have a lot less headaches and problems. and, And I like their family traditions. And so There are segments of the country in Ohio and Pennsylvania where, surprisingly, there are many people who are, you know, seeking acceptance into that community. Again, what is happening, though, is that they are being brought in for the wrong reasons, not because I'm a deeply committed, born-again, blood-bought child of God. Now, again, that's not to say that there are not Amish people that know Christ as their Savior, so don't misunderstand me. I met some there. But some of them that I met, when we began to dialogue, they admitted that what had happened and what was happening in the Amish church was that there was a lot of people, and this is true in, in across the board in denominations, but that there were a lot of people who only had a form of Christianity without the real substance and essence of, of being born again. 
Now, um, in terms of your your second question, uh, angels, you know, the Bible does teach that it's possible for a Christian, even in our day, it's not unique to the first century, but it's possible for a person in our day to have some kind of angelic encounter. And the writer to the Hebrews, you know, exhorts us to show hospitality one to another and that we need to, um, well, let me just read it. He says, let let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So angels are messengers sent out to serve, Hebrews 1 says, those who are inheriting salvation. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior have servant angels. Some people ask me if I believe in a guardian angel. Well, I don't know that I believe in a singular guardian angel that is assigned to Carl Brogy, but I do know that there are angels, plural, Hebrews 1 tells me, that are assigned. Whether they are the same angels all the time, I have no idea. It would be pure speculation. If I were guessing, I would probably say they were not. Uh, that there are probably different angels on assignment in different areas because they're organized and structured and according to the book of Daniel chapter 10 and other New Testament passages. But in either case, we have angels that serve those who know Christ as their personal Savior. And so it is possible to have an angelic encounter. And the Bible interestingly raises this issue as a motivation. Listen, you encounter people that are strangers, don't casually write them off or treat them in a less than Christ-like fashion, you might in actuality even be entertaining an angel. How would you know? Well, you don't, uh, because when angels come, they come in human form, in human bodies. Uh, They look just like people. And you wouldn't know, you don't see an angel with a wing or wings. They, They can look just like people. That's the whole point. Um, and so you may have had many encounters in your lifetime with angels, maybe a total stranger who came up and rendered help on the side of the road was not a a human as you thought. Maybe that person was an angel who came quote unquote disguised as a human. So anyway, it's a good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877 um S seven, what is it? Nine two four seven nine eight zero eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero. Right. Or you can email us at tbl at the wagp dot net address. Our next uh, listener is uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Lori writes, "I was at your service this past Sunday. This was actually two Sundays ago." Uh, the way you present the gospel with such passion is awesome. You're living the kingdom of God. Thank you. Uh, one thing you mentioned the Sunday before was that someone involved in homosexuality is not a believer but is just deceived. I know about that issue and have many friends uh, say that they can't struggle anymore and have embraced the lifestyle as believers. I, I don't understand how they can do that. However, I believe that some of them are true believers. They also give the argument what about very overweight persons whose drug or addiction of choice is food, and yet we wouldn't question their salvation? And yes, uh, they may be celebrating their sin by eating that piece of pie. Well, this is timely for Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, anyway, I'm just not sure how to love my friends well who think now their sin is okay with God. Also, they are good about telling me that I cannot judge them, and it's true, I cannot judge someone's heart. I just know when I was in my life dominating sin for a period of years, I was very miserable, and I'm thankful God did not give up on me. I think churches need uh, to uh, somehow reach out to the gay community. Your thoughts would be appreciated, and thank you very much. Well, it's a good question. Let me let me just first say that there's a message that I preached, uh, is it okay to be gay? And that is online at cbcofbuford.org. It's also online at searchthescriptures.org. If you just type in Carl Brogy YouTube, homosexuality or gay or something, it will bring up the message. It's also on YouTube as well. Now, I did not say that it was impossible for a Christian to commit a homosexual act. What I did underscore and emphasize was lifestyle. And you bring out the word lifestyle. But bring back up her um, email here for just a second, Rick, so I can, I don't want to misquote her. She said, um, thank you uh, that you mentioned the Sunday before that someone involved in homosexuality is not a believer, but is just deceived. Well, you may have to qualify that involvement in the reason I say that is let's let's expand it to other sins. Let's just say, for instance, that a person is a born-again Christian, and then they get caught up 10 years into their Christian life in an affair. And they have an affair that's going on for three months. Could a Christian do that? Yes, very much so. It's entirely possible. Could a person equally who had been saved from a homosexual lifestyle live a celibate life and 10 years after their conversion fall back into homosexuality for a few months. Could they do that? Sure they could. Well, what's the difference? Well, several differences. Number one, if a person has been regenerated by the spirit, then that individual will hate that sin. Just like they will hate the sin of adultery or fornication or any other sin that you can think of. They may find pleasure in it because there is pleasure in sin for a season. That's what makes it tempting. If there was no pleasure in sin, there would be no temptation. But it's only for a season. The bite of the sin always comes back. And the consequences of of the sin will meet you sooner or later head on. And so a person who's regenerate of the Spirit of God is a miserable person, as you describe yourself and your prior lifestyle. And number two, not only are they miserable, they come under the discipline of God Almighty. But can a person as a way of life claim to be a born-again Christian and live in a homosexual lifestyle? And again, the New Testament would simply say no. Um, In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, beginning in verse 9, He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he makes a very clear, pointed statement, and it's not unique to homosexuals. He also includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, idolatry, drunkenness, and so forth. Uh, And he prefaces that statement by saying 
uh, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And prior to that statement, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he closes this section by saying, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Very similar statement in the book of Galatians. Let me turn over to Galatians for just a second. Because again, I I think lifestyle is what I want to underscore in your thinking this morning. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Uh, You could translate that the deeds of the sin nature are plain. When he's talking here about the flesh, he's talking about the capacity within the old Adamic nature that we are con- were brought into this world the moment we're conceived. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, in those three words, immorality, impurity, sensuality, you could put fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and on and on and on we could go. And he gives a whole long list of sins, and then he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the word is practice. I think the newer translations replace it with a couple of words, those who live like this. So if this is a person's lifestyle, then they have proof positive that they have never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Now, is it possible for a Christian to fall into any of these sins? Yes, because the paragraph opens with the words, I say, walk by the Spirit so that you might not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So Paul is exhorting us as believers to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we won't carry out the deeds of the sinful nature. But if all I do is walk in a sinful nature and give no evidence of the Spirit, then I'm basically, by my lifestyle, publicizing that I've never had a birth from above. Now, sometimes a person meets Christ as their Savior and they're tempted if they were immoral before they were saved, even if they weren't immoral before they were saved. They may be tempted to some kind of illicit sexual relationship. It might be heterosexual sex, some affair, some premarital relationship. They might be tempted to some homosexual act, especially if they were saved out of that lifestyle. The temptation is not sin. It's what we do at the temptation that determines what direction our life will take. Well, we're out of time. I hope that helps and trying to catch up on some of these email questions today. And by God's grace, we were able to do that. Hope you have a great day. God bless you.